Rough Trade is giving away a third of the first three months of the Rough Trade Club plus new music membership exclusively to 101 Part-Time Jobs listeners. Become a member of Rough Trade Club New Music and you'll receive the Rough Trade Album of the Month straight to your door every month on an exclusive vinyl pressing with bonus material. Club members have received exclusive pressings of albums from Sufjan Stevens, Sprints, The Last Dinner Party, English Teacher and Over Mono, just to name a few, this past year alone. Sign up using the promo code CLUB101POD and you'll get Rough Trade's Album of the Month, Camera Obscura's Look to the East, Look to the West for a third of the usual price. By signing up, you'll be getting Rough Trade's exclusive issue of the album on opaque purple in a gatefold sleeve plus a bonus CD containing five demos. Don't want the album of the month but still want all the benefits? Sign up to the standard tier using Club 101 Pod and you'll still get the first month free. You'll also get free shipping on all orders, 10% off at the bar and on secondhand vinyl in store and exclusive access to sold out Rough Trade events. So don't hang around. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and sign up with the code CLUB101POD. That's CLUB101POD and claim money Money off Rough Trade's album of the month today. This offer is for UK residents only. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Living easy, living free, working the day so I can play my night. As for now. 
you're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs. It's the podcast where I speak to bands and musicians about what they've got up to between making records and between going on tours. And more specifically, ask them about the various and precarious part-time jobs they've had along their way in order to sustain all that. Really, it's about finding your own way into the working world on your own terms. On today's episode, Felix White, whose book, It's Always Summer Somewhere, is one of my favorite ever reads bringing together his love for cricket, the resilience of his old band, the Maccabees, and his mother's illness. Felix has done so many things over the years. He's perfect for this podcast by virtue of the fact that he's just done so much, maybe not the traditional part-time jobs, but things that require discipline and the imagination to to do it and and make it work. He co-founded Yala Records, which brought us The Magic Gang and Willie J. Healy, as well as a bunch of amazing live YouTube sessions. There's some brilliant ones by Idols and Crows. He's a sports writer, sports commentator, our indie rock representative on Tailenders, writing scores for The Edge and the new John McEnroe film, McEnroe. Of course, guitarist in the Maccabees. And he's just formed a new band with his brothers, 86 TVs, who are on tour now, supporting Jamie T around the UK, finishing up this Friday at Alexandra Palace in London. Cheers for listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs, supported by 2000 Trees Festival. Just a few hours away from London next July, 2000 Trees is one of the best independent music festivals in the UK. For next year, they've announced a four-day lineup, which includes a Wednesday Forest Stage show, where Bob Villain and Holding Absence are playing, supported by St. Agnes, Prestamico, Delaire the Liar, and Snakes. That Forest Stage is actually in the forest at 2000 Trees. Those four-day tickets are available now. They won't be for much longer, as I understand it. So if you want to go to 2000 Trees next year and have the time of your life, now's the time to get your ticket. With the voucher code 101POD, you get 20 quid off that ticket. That's virtually free money if you know you're going to go anyway. It's one of the best rock festivals you can go to in the UK with incredible headliners. Last year saw Jimmy Eat World, Turnstile, The Chats, Nova Twins, Thrice, Idols, and so many amazing bands, a lot of which you'll know, a lot of which you will know in the future. And it's kind of one of those festivals where you go to to find out your new favorite band. I'm so excited about going myself. If you want to join me there, 101 Pod gets you 20 quid off. All of that at 2000treesfestival.co.uk. All right, here's Felix White on 101 part-time jobs. It seems to me like the Maccabees were sort of in that group of last indie bands where if you got a record deal, you could sort of float on it. Do you know what? I so such a good point. I think that's... Um... I think about that all the time now because I'm involved in music in different ways. Um, I run a record label for one thing and um, it wasn't something we took for granted, but I think you're right. I think it would, just like as coincidence had it, I was exactly the right age just at the last moment that, that groups were getting functional record deals that meant that you could essentially just live off it. Because I think what happened at that time, if it's not too boring, like as a point is that the music industry hadn't quite yet adapted to the fact that records weren't getting sold. So the internet was just becoming yeah. a thing, like whatever it was, Napster and MySpace. And so so record sales were dwindling, but major label um, like setups for, for deals were still handing out these sort of old school style 
record deals to bands and at the same time guitar music was really sort of in vogue and popular so we just ha happened to sort of land right in that um not that anyone really wanted to sign us to be honest we fiction we only label <laughs> but did but um but yeah you're totally right we just got in there right at the last minute you had that lovely moment at the is it the water rats in king's cross where yeah. where the person from from fiction records came to you while you were packing up your leads and your pedal board he actually read that and he hadn't, um, he hadn't told me he was reading the book and he got in touch with me when he um, when he read that bit and said, and that's exactly as I, as I remember it as well. And that was such a lovely thing about the book is that there were so many of these tiny little moments that have stayed in my head and you're never sure whether they whether you've misremembered them or they mean as much to the other person. And there was loads of that through when people read the book, like getting in touch with me saying, oh, I remember exactly this moment and that kind of thing. I did, especially at the start when, when you're young. I read those first few chapters, Felix, and I was like, fuck, you've got a solid memory. Like, I, don't, I, don't, you know, I don't know that many people with that good a memory. Yeah, I had a. But um, you never know, do you? Because you could just be a. You could just be like living in borderline insanity and just misremembering everything um, <laughs> to write your own book. But I. But I do. People do say that to me. But I can remember stuff very clearly and very well. And I have. I've had that. I've just been lucky to have that. Have that really. Yeah. Did you find when you were writing those moments and sort of re-accessing those particular days, like that woman who's standing? When I read it, oh, I, I kept on thinking that she was outside the Oval or sort of around the Oval train station, tube station. Yeah. And that's, you're, you're, you're the first person. I've done a lot of conversations and interviews about it, but you're the first person who's brought that woman up. <laughs> I'm so glad someone has because um, she was such a part of um, growing up, like seeing her, even now, like where I live, like I walk around the corner and I see the same person every time. They, they really form benchmark moments of like that moment in your life, didn't they? But um, that, that I wrote about that because um, I had sort of some interactive type conversations with my dad while I was writing it about the um, extent of my mum's illness and and how and how exactly it happened. So I was too young to sort of be so clearly aware of, of, of most of it. Yeah. And um, that that came up in one of those conversations. He he reminded me of that woman, and um, yeah, there was something amazing about her because she was on the corner with a ghetto blaster type thing <laughs> just waving and dancing all day and I there was like even for a young mind there was the idea like it, it was just this tiny window of like wow that would be quite if you just like like got rid of all your responsibility that seems like quite a good place to be and then the opposite of that was obviously watching Mike Afferton who was loaded with burdened with too much responsibility and that seemed quite stressful but um it was it was useful as a sort of novelistic device because I really liked the feeling of like w with hindsight, like cricket has explained so many moments of my life um, uh, to me and in so in quite a dramatic way as well. So like I, I started to think about it, like, you know, in um, whatever it is, Return of a Native, when it's like the Heath is the character <laughs> or that kind of thing. I, I started to think about cricket like that, but it was always explaining to me where I was in my life and of course you sort of find things that relate to you more but they did actually have like this sort of all borderline disturbing sort of knack of either foreboding or being exactly uh, mirroring what I was going through at that moment in my life. Cricket is responded to in so many different ways. Picking someone off the street you're going to get a bunch of different responses of what they know, how they feel about the sport. 
it's steeped in privilege. Other people might be playing village cricket on a Sunday afternoon and borrowing each other's pads. It is culturally divisive in, in quite a lot of ways. You know, I've, I've had it all my life. You know, I grew up playing cricket and played for Bucks for a couple of years as, as oh, a wow. bowler. And I went to private school for sort of other reasons, really. Like my, my dad was sort of a bit violent. So I was sent to, to boarding school. And, and, right. and cric both cricket and a private education, it's not necessarily a side-eye glance, but, it, but it's a bit of like, you know, are you joking? You know, are you, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's yeah. one of those things that is, is, is quote-unquote not normal, I suppose. Well, I definitely felt like, um, that's really interesting what you just said about your life. I, the... the um, one of the consistent themes of my life has been defending cricket to people who say like it's boring blah blah blah, blah. Mm. and so that's kind of and still to this day I'm probably having that conversation three or four times a week by people that say cricket is boring or rubbish or whatever so that's become just like <laughs> defending um, cricket but in terms of like you saying about going to private school and stuff that was big part of um big part of the book was sort of really tackling things that I would have never said out loud before because I'd have been too embarrassed to. And um, th there's definitely an element sort of, as you're alluding to with cricket um, where it uh, accentuates or punctuates being middle-class yeah. into it. Yeah. Not always, but in the South maybe. And so there was always that, um, definitely I wrestled with that in my teens and early twenties when um being in a band and the bands that we were surrounded with were all trying to pretend they weren't middle class. And then being into cricket was like, oh shit, I clearly am. <laughs> so um, it's like always had a sort of sense of um, not allowing me to get away with that as well, um, if that kind of makes sense. Uh, but um, but you're right. I think people, well, I did some baseball stuff relatively recently in America because um, I'm really into baseball right. and even then I was, I was I was doing the commentary on the BBC with a, a pitcher called CC Sabathia who's a legend in baseball and a uh, woman called Melanie Newman who called in the, the game and they're into all sports they knew all about football or soccer and Formula One and da, da, da. but as soon as I started talking about cricket they literally had zero comprehension or understanding like it, in their eyes it was like talking it was it was quite sort of um, psychedelic to them, so it, so it does have yeah cricket. It just has this weird knack of remaining um, untangible to a lot of people. Tailenders, and I'm not the first person to say this. Oh mate, when you did the first Hackney Empire, and I was so hungover, I nearly <laughs> puked into my hands when Jack Leach came down the middle. But but a, a few years before that, I had got my. Um, you know, suitable for this. Got my first sort of nine to five ever. I was 26 yeah. at uh, yeah. doing doing some dog's body job and at Microsoft. And I got, and I clicked on Tailenders because it was just before the World Cup. And mate, Tailenders has done such an amazing job of making cricket funny, approachable. You know, you're fucking in the dressing room with Jimmy Anderson. Mm. You know, you're, you're in indie rock with you. You're Greg James, Britain's best broadcaster you know it, yeah. it's such an amazing experience I love it and it it got me yeah. I hadn't cared about cricket for 15 years I got back into it and, I, and I've the last four five years I've loved it absolutely yeah. loved it so you know thank you on behalf of so many people that you know did oh, it that's so nice. it's it's funny yeah. it's brilliant 
Oh man, I really appreciate you saying that. Thank you. I, I did, yeah, the thing, I mean, Thailanders has been a huge thing in my life, to be honest with you, because interesting you're talking about leaving bands and then, you know, being the catalyst for your fascination with sort of nine to five jobs and stuff. Because um, when my bands broke up, I was completely like bereft and lost. And I do feel like um, cricket and more pointedly Thailanders sort of had this weird, has had this weird knack of coming round to sort of, um, give me purpose and all that kind of thing so i'm so grateful to tail enders as a thing also interestingly talking about bands we kind of operate now not thankfully not literally but we operate a bit like a band like i think of it like a band yeah where it's like um all these different personalities and the tail enders thing itself is becoming bigger than anyone would have conceived it and growing wider than any one person and that's a really um amazing feeling when that happens to like a group of people so it's also kind of been really cool to me that that, that it's that tail enders has almost been a complete replacement of being in a band has it given you that sense of purpose where it is something that you regularly do and it's in your diary it is something that you can get paid for because you're basically yeah. you're basically a you know, podcasts are huge now and they're, own, and they're getting bigger and it's the new medium of, of broadcasting. Yeah. I mean, does, does this really feel like something you've, you've, you've settled into and this is one of your jobs? Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely. Yeah. There was, there, there was you're, you're right in sort of um, referring to that a little bit because at the beginning of there was a sort of, uh, there was a kind of resistance to being like, you know, when it's your so programmed to being in a band, one of it or a musician one of the things that you kind of always or I anyway repeated to myself was that I I, I would never do anything else, else than be in the Maccabees or be in a band so there were definitely in the early stages there was that kind of um thawing out or resistance to the fact that um it was okay mm. um to not keep pursuing that in the, in the same sort of dogged passionate way but I'm so do you know, the thing that it's, that's taught me most tail enders really is that um, it's exactly as it is. So you're hearing a conversation as it naturally happens and there's very little, I mean, probably it's probably um, obvious, but there's often not that much um, sort of research or preparation goes into the conversations. We're all just like Jimmy's playing cricket and we are, <laughs> you know, always checking in on cricket in the background type thing. Yeah. So it's not like, so every time we do an episode, it's very authentic and it's really taught me that um, sometimes that has, sometimes people can tell when something's real and it just, it has a sort of effect. And then I sort of do think back to a lot of the times in the Maccabees where everything has to be so perfect and so considered. Um, so it's, it's been a nice little life lesson in just putting things into the world that sometimes, um, even if it's a little bit um, uncomfortable, the, the most uh the most real thing is often the thing that's going to connect best you're human you know you yeah. you'll call var drs or the other way around and and that's great because <laughs> <laughs> sorry yeah. that comes to yeah. mind I'm, I'm i'm putting you on the spot there i'm pointing the finger <laughs> no there's, de there's definitely a lot of uh, there's definitely a lot of flaws and when we first started recording it i actually i didn't realize we were recording it I thought we were doing the chat beforehand <laughs> so when i listened to the first few episodes i was like are you kidding me I thought we were just sort of messing around at the start like I didn't realize they were keeping in all the stuff and we were just chatting I I because I, I had this idea of what radio shows especially cricket podcasts were going to be like mm. so um although ours is obviously very loosely cricket based now 
but I, d- I didn't really um, have any a conception of the, the fact that we were recording it where we were. <laughs> yeah. You got some fantastic moments in It's Always Summer Somewhere on TMS where the nerves get to you a little bit and and on Radio X was finding your way into tailenders and podcasting. Did that did that feel like it was coming at a natural pace and a progressive step where you could sort of breathe freely and have a laugh in that format? Well, Greg's really good at Greg is really good at um that's like one of his main skills I've come to learn is that he's making being in control of um, a situation while making everyone feel at ease and it just flow really naturally. And that's a much harder skill um, as you're probably learning than, than you'd imagine, you know, to keep to keep both those things afloat because you can say like, oh, it's chaos and we're just sort of messing around. But actually, actually listening to chaos and people messing around isn't any fun at all. So it's there's that kind of... Um, it, it, it takes a skill on Greg's part to make sure he ties that all together. You know what I mean? Obviously doing a specialist radio um, show like John Kennedy's and the six music stuff, which I love. There's a, there's a difference there because there's just a little moment where you're live on air mm. you can picture yourself in people's kitchens or whatever. And when you're first doing that, it's hard. It's hard for your brain not to deliver that, how real that moment is. And to not sort of start to find incredibly straightforward sentences really difficult to get out of your mouth. Yeah. But I've learned, I've, you know, that's just like anything. You just learn to do it in time. It just popped into my head there that Zane Lowe has that incredible ability to mm. ask a really pertinent question that's that's quite mm-hmm. that's extremely thoughtful and kind of evokes some 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 great answer and some great stories because that's what it's about right stories and yeah i feel like zane Lowe and greg they have that ability to shape something and to make it yeah. digestible and interesting and uh informative all at the same time and and a laugh you know the most important thing yeah it's interesting you say that because i was talking with greg about zane we were talking about how brilliant Zane shows well they still are on Apple but um at that time when he was on X and Radio 1 when we were growing up you really did like for the bands and for listeners like you you really did sort of absorb what he was saying um and he felt like he had an authority on it and it was just really entertaining as well as you as you say so you had once you have those things like meshing up against each other that's when you got magic really when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One hundred one part-time jobs. 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 How did you know that you could write? So you met Phil Walker from Wisden. He yeah. was encouraging you to write features. I mean, yeah. now that 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 fills in some of the some of the, the blanks. But going from feature writing to book writing. When I was young, I, w- I actually I wasn't very good at many things at school, like terrible at science and maths and that kind of thing. But I was I, w- I always found English and English quite a, sort of a natural thing to be able to do, and I had just sort of was interested in, in books and that. So that that was like one of the classes that I didn't like 
flag behind and sort of look forward to. Actually, interestingly, when I was reading Johnny Marr's book, he does say at one point um, that a lot of guitarists um, are good writers, which I hadn't realised or find it natural to write. Um, so I don't know how much truth there is in that. But anyway, but 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 then during the Maccabees years, just out of almost out of sheer um, the fact that no one else really wanted to do it, all like the sort of functional things like um, writing the, the mailer or like when there's a little press release blurb that you need to do. I ended up doing all that stuff, even to the point where towards the end of the Maccabees, we realised that in your little press release, that's normally what journalists ask you about because no one's got time to research it properly. So in yeah. the end, I just used to end up writing the Maccabees PR pieces with just loads of um, little touch points. But if someone had just heard of us, we'd be asked something that wasn't like annoying. Yeah, it would make sense, or, right? Because the bands, every band has a message, whether they know it or not. Yes, exactly. So I, I guess in some ways I was learning just the sort of mechanics of writing a little bit just by doing that. But I'd never, um, I'd never imagined that I was going to end up writing books and all that kind of thing. Or they literally have all ended up just being sort of survivally, so it's almost like survivalist methods in moving forward to the next thing. And cricket was just something I consumed a lot of. I've always consumed a lot of cricket writing just because I feel like it was always been the best sports writing, really. I, you know, on tour, I used to cut out um, the, the articles and take them on tour with me. <laughs> I remember on an Australian tour, I, I'd got all that week's cricket writing and cut it out for the plane journey and had it all stuck in my diary. Um, so I was sort of always really into it, but I'd never imagined that I would be actually doing it. The depth that people go into writing about cricket is, and the sort of, the way that people sing their sentences, it makes me feel like warm and fuzzy inside. Oh man, 100%, such a good way of putting it. And I, I, yeah, I feel that, I feel that now actually with um, reading baseball writing. So reading like New York Times pieces, it's a very sort of Americanized version of the same thing. Like the um, the pieces people write are, are, are very sort of novelistic, romantic, but also really sort of succinct and um, have really good economy of words and stuff like that. And there's always like so with cricket and baseball, like that, there's so much failure and doom and loss to write about. Yeah. It cannot. It's just endlessly um, interesting to read. It's kind of reflected in culture. It's sort of the old man and the sea. DiMaggio yeah. sung about in Simon and Garfunkel's Mrs. Robinson. Exactly. There is this kind of glory of it, isn't it? Totally. And, and that still exists today, does it? Yeah, exactly that. It's very sort of romantic and poetic. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's really true. But yeah, but sorry, that's a very long answer to the question. I, I don't know. I have never thought I was going to write a book. And then when the publishers that had done Jimmy's book asked me if I'd like to do a cricket book, at first I was just really... My thought, first thoughts was because the tail enders had been so sort of silly, really, and flippant and funny that I would write a book in that tone. But I was imagining it a bit like um, a bit like High Fidelity or something with John Cusack. Yeah. Where I thought it would be funny if I used instead of moving back through um, records to talk about breakups, I was talking about um, cricketing moments to sort of reflect my. Um, my personal flaws yeah. and then uh, um and then but but then like just like a lot of projects at that time that perhaps fell suddenly lockdown happened and I had I was just 
everything else stopped. And so I just had this second where I, where I sort of realised, well, this is the only thing I've got to do. And if I'm going to do it properly, this is the only kind of book, this is the kind of book you only write once. So I just decided let's, I had been reading a few grief books just because, um, because my mum, when my diagnosis, has always been interested in that. And I just decided I'm, I'm just going to go fully in and use almost like a voice of a grief book writer inside a sports book. Cause I don't think I've sort of really read that that often and just felt like that would be a, um, interesting process and I ended up finishing a book almost finishing a book that I hadn't intended to start if that makes any sense I started I suddenly felt like well you know where you where you where you sense that the person is telling you things that they couldn't even tell their closest friends yeah and that a book is really helpful in that because you've got all the space just to say it and you know that if someone's with you if someone's kind of like made that effort to get inside the book they're going to be with you on that journey so to speak so I suddenly felt like yeah like I said I have this sort of small epiphany where I felt like oh if you put that inside what is essentially a book about um sport from a male perspective that there might be something really interesting and sort of untapped in that it's funny how we respond to trust if you know when your mate tells you I've never told anyone this before immediately you become more sensitized you know your your emotions get heightened and you do listen more man that's such a good point i've never heard anyone say that and that's really um that's so true isn't it i just flash back as you said that to you you kind of it's like a let, letting you into a door but no one else is um and it's that yeah. responsibility yeah it's responsibility exactly exactly there's an element of trust in writing a book like that and putting it out there that I think um, I'm not talking about my own book, but other books that I've read in a similar way that you do sort of, you, you respect that someone has let the guard down and is telling you as much truth as, as they are even aware of about themselves. Yeah. And I think there's some, there's a, there's um, something that definitely connects about that. I mean, I definitely know, you know, I've, I've never had a conversation with anyone in my life before I wrote this book about the fact that, um, that, uh, I was secretly hoping cr- cricket teams and football teams I supported would lose because I would be sort of, when that happens, I've, you get the feeling of communal hurt and failure. And it was almost turned situation turned into a funeral. And I felt sort of safe in that moment. Mm. I'd always felt like, God, that would be, that's such a sacrilege thing to say about, a team you support because obviously um you want to win but since i've uh since i've written that into the book so many people come up to me in various formats whether it's like dming or in person and almost sort of whisper i hope that you know i i often hope that my team lose too and i've never sort of um (laughs) i should say it did did you build up like a level of guilt well i'll tell you what the guilt thing is i mean to go slightly deep but I think um when people have all kinds of different forms of trauma and grief don't they Mm -hmm. but when you have the sort of one that I did which is losing a parent when you're young I think actually this probably goes for any age but I just talk from personal experience I think that um there are so many things that happen in that moment because 
the person that you you um, re- rely on to give you things like unconditional love, touch, reassurance, support, um, guidance, all that kind of thing. That person's gone. So you, I, and I think a lot of people end up going into the world and you um, unwittingly sometimes manipulate situations so that you're getting that in different forms from different places. And I think it's interesting that I, because I, I've gone in, went into sort of very public uh, jobs and done things in my life like that. It's like, you know, I sort of found that in groups of people and big emotional events and all that kind of thing. Like that's where I found a version of it. And I think that serves you for a while. But the problem with that, with people that have unprocessed grief, is that there comes a point where you become aware of what you're doing and then it turns into a guilt because you feel like you might have used, your, in my case, my mum's death for some sort of personal benefit or like some kind of... Um, bargaining power you know so I think that's when the complicated stuff happens because that's it's easy then to sort of like harbor all these dark feelings about yourself and how you've responded to something without finding a vent for it and definitely the process process of my life and in the book as well is that sort of realization eventually that you we just do what we need to to survive and when there comes a certain point where you are behaving in that way, but you don't need to anymore. And if you're lucky, you might come to that realization and go, actually, I can get rid of these techniques that for a while were serving me, but are now um, stopping me moving on in my life. Yeah. Um, I hope that makes I think I hope that kind of makes sense. It does. And I, and I know this is maybe going off a bit of a strand, but I think, um, in my experience, when I've been really scared about something, like I was really scared of my mum cheating on my dad and then it actually happened the right. other way around. And it started in the outfield while I was fielding. Um, I would, that, tra- and, it's, and it's so clear to look back on now, but I dealt with, and I think, I think it might be a little, a little bit different here to, to what you're saying, but I feel like they're in the same world. And the way I was trying to, try to deal with that is I got this really, really awful OCD out in the field you're so bored right and I was a bowler I was a quick bowler so you know all the personality traits that go with that and <laughs> I I in the outfield I believed that I would be I, I didn't see it it wasn't like a trippy thing it wasn't psychedelic but I thought I had like two wires on me like a puppet so when I walked in and I was waiting for the ball to come to me and to lob it back to keeper or whoever and I'd walk back to my spot my walking in spot if I turned around left so i'd do a mm-hmm. 360 to my left the yeah, next time yeah. i'd have to do 360 to my right in order right, yeah. to maintain balance in life and to stop my parents cheating on each other wow. and, the, and the awful irony is that it it did happen and so right. that really fucked with me later on in life and i'm only dealing with that now yeah yeah sorry this is deep isn't it um no that's really it's really fascinating and i guess that's sort of what um I guess that's a lot of what OCD or that is about is that you, because there's a lot of stuff in that that is completely uncontrollable, you're trying to assert some sort of element that you can control. Yeah, what's it's going control. To 
and then but and then also but that's a way that, you know that then I can imagine that's how you felt guilt because subconsciously or whatever you might have been feeling like you can do something to affect what you whether your parents cheat on each other or not which you clearly can't but then the fact that they do meant meant that you sort of carry that with you like you failed in some way I carried that through my 20s and I still do it now and I have to give myself a bit of a telling off uh you know whether I use my left foot or my right foot for the first step you know they're triggers I guess that's so interesting you saying that because I, I do that if I walk past a tree or something and I touch it with the outside of my right hand for example right I have to stop go back and then touch the tree with the outside of my left hand and the inside of both hands as well to balance it all out right and, and so do you connect that do you tie that to a, a thought no I've never do you know what I've never sort of really I, that's really interesting I think I'm going to go away and think about that a bit more because I don't think I have too many other OCD type oh do I well I think yeah I think maybe one thing I've noticed about as I've grown up is that I, I, as I'm getting older and have my own space, I'm, I'm very controlled about my own space. Like it has to be um, a certain way. And I never was that when I was younger. And I think that's that um, there is an element of um, protecting yourself from chaos or unpredictable things, you know. I think you said it before on the on tail enders which made me think i really would love to speak to you for for 101 is surrey players selling christmas trees in the off season and oh I wondered, my god yeah and i wondered how much you you know how much you think that permeated your mind playing music or or being to you know you had two other brothers who are obviously quite inspired you know playing music skateboarding yeah to sort of take the reins of your own shit you know kind of make your own future in a bit of a joe strummer way that's true that was real sort of folkloric thing when we were growing up in in south london but um but the surrey team and nadine shah and i think ed giddens might have been some others i might have got that wrong but they're quite big surrey players successful surrey players in, in sort of county championship winning sides and um yeah they, <laughs> they sold christmas trees in in um in winter, which is the most cricket thing ever. I, I guess what was always fascinating about that to me is that where, where fantasy and real life sort of collide, because in my head, Nadeem Shah and Ed Giddens were sort of almost superhuman people that didn't exist in the real human sphere. So to imagine that they firstly would need money in, in, winter, in winter to sell Christmas trees, but also functionally did that, was just like one of the... Um, sort of thunderbolts from my childhood yeah for about nine months i would uh, i was a charity fundraiser on the street a chugger great so i got quite good at it well i was really timid and to begin with i was about 17 and i um was quite timid and not 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 keen on like just standing in front of people on the high street and just asking um them to stop and then persuade them to give you their bank account details <laughs> but um there was an older woman who was um my team leader called Kat Luig who was maybe she was probably only mid-20s at the time but I, I really um looked up to her and we had this sort of we didn't have a relationship which was, I was just probably a young boy to her but I was kind of in awe of her and we had a few months where 
um, we'd like smoke around the corner then put on the bibs and do charity fundraising all day and um, you know normally quite unsuccessfully but um, it's something I used to really enjoy and as I started to get better at it and realize that with like a certain degree of confidence you could stop a stranger on the street make them stop in front of you and then you know five minutes later they might just be sort of giving you their bank details and the charity that this the feeling that gave me I think was actually um did feed into being able to stand up on a stage because it right. gives you a sense of like what's possible if you're really um, convincing some someone of something. But what happened during that project that really happened during that time was that it was right in the middle of um, the period when there was loads of stuff in the press that actually the people that did that job were getting paid and not all the money was going to the charity. It was going to the company that, that did that. And they were called it... Um, chugging charity mugging and <laughs> and just as it was termed chugging right um exactly coincided with me um getting the nod to become a team leader of the chuggers so i used to go into the um head office or whatever early pick up the big bibs for the team and and then do that and it was right it was a, a quite a controversial time but one week a man who was really inquisitive joined my team on his first day asking me loads of questions and he really liked suede the band and, uh, and we started talking about suede and I like suede so we kind of got on and on his first day of work um he asked me loads of questions and I really liked him so like <laughs> three hours before we were supposed to I took him to the pub and we and we went and got drinks and it was just like wicked see you tomorrow John and then the next day John wasn't there and the next day John wasn't there Next image, and I was thinking, it's so weird because I really like John. He seemed to be so into the job. Like, why would you not tell me next day? Anyway, a week later, in the double page spread in the sun, was an expose on me chugging and all the things I told their undercover reporter. No way. Did they name you? More than named me. There was a um there was a there was a photo of me um that someone like obviously hiding one of their photographers like hiding behind the bushes or like trees or something had taken a and circle and underneath it was written I'm not not making this up evil chugger Felix White no oh my god Felix that is that is fucking hilarious so so but I was really um <laughs> I was like. I was completely made up about it. I brought it into school. I told everybody about it. I, I was like, it was like my first, um, my first like experience of dancing with fame. And I, do you know what? He weirdly he'd given me his number, this guy John. Yeah. Because we got on that well the first day. Great. And I phoned it, and it was his. It was him, and we had this chat about it. I was like, dude, what? What the fuck? <laughs> and. Um, he said, yeah, I felt bad about it. Da, da, da. And we ended up having a chat about suede. <laughs> and that was it. That is so good. That's amazing. Felix, thank you so much. Cheers, Giles. It's been a pleasure, mate. Thank you. So that was Felix White on 101 Part-Time Jobs. 
His band 86 TVs are on tour now. Catch them this week around the UK. Alexandra Palace in London this Friday with Jamie T is sold out, but it sounds like we're going to be able to see 86 TVs soon. See you next week for a new episode. Go well. Cheers. Here's Coxbarrow. I've been working all day for me, mate, on the side. Running around like a blue ass fly. I've been working, yeah, I've been working all day for me, mate. Every blink minute I've been on the go. Up and down the ladder like a fiddler's elbow. I've been working, yeah, I've been working all day for me, mate. This is a Mighty Moon Media podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.